Hi, everybody. It's Liz Nord, and you're listening to the No Film School podcast. Documentary films tend to follow a few tried-and-true paths. They might retell an historic happening in a new way, unpack a social issue, or follow a dramatic event that has a clear beginning and end. Perhaps one of the most tricky types to craft is a character-based story, where the film centers around the personal journeys of one or a small handful of subjects. After all, there are so many unknowns with this approach. Can this person really carry a whole film on their backs? Will audiences connect with them in the way you do? How do you know when to ever stop filming someone whose life will likely go on far beyond your production? Despite these uphill battles, my three guests today each took on this challenge, and the captivating films that resulted each played at the Doc NYC Film Festival last week. Their characters couldn't be more different. One is the tough guy frontman of a New York hardcore band, one is the first female Sharia law judge in Palestine, and one is a woman who's started a traveling circus of cats. But the lessons the filmmakers learned and the advice they share is surprisingly similar and it applies to really any filmmaker trying to tell a good story. I think you'll really enjoy my conversation with directors Eric McCohn, Jacob Firing, and Ian McFarland about how they pulled off their impressive films and the bravery it takes to embark on such a project, both as a filmmaker behind and a subject in front of the camera. Welcome to the No Film School podcast, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Us. <laughs> <laughs> so just to familiarize everyone with who's here and your voices, can you introduce yourself and the name of your film? I'm Erica Cohn, and I directed The Judge. I'm Jacob Firing, and I directed Samantha's Amazing Acro Cats. And I'm Ian McFarland, and I directed The Godfather's a Hardcore. So the theme of our conversation today is about kind of filming larger than life characters or just really focusing on people in a story. And you each have really interesting films at Doc NYC and they're all so different. Like they couldn't be three more different projects, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, except that they're like human centered. So I'd love to start by just hearing about, you know, what is the film and who are the people that you're, you know, focused on? start Ian well my film is about Roger Moret and Vinny Stigma who are uh, two of the most influential underground figures in hardcore punk rock um, they have uh, they started the band agnostic front back in uh, 1982 um, it was started by Vinny Stigma and um, they're now moving into their 50s and 60s and uh, they're still doing it and um, they have a very very uh, interesting story themselves, but um, the story focuses more on uh, mortality, um, you know, aging, um, and dealing with that at the same time, um, you know, having a, 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 a culture that they love and are so part of, but at the same time wrestling with that changing and then them changing at the same time. Um, so that's kind of the, if you just, you know, water it down, you know, that's what it's mainly about. And so my film, Samantha's Amazing Acro Cats, it focuses on one person, Samantha, who um, has what you could say potentially a midlife crisis and chooses to quit her day job and start a cat circus where she trains cats to do circus tricks and drives around the country with 14 cats and a trainer kind of trying to fulfill, fulfill her version of the American dream, you could say arguably, 
and um, it kind of explores the stakes in starting over and following your passion in a contemporary American economy. So, It's funny, by the way, because my whole premise was that your films are so different, but actually in hearing the two of you talk about your films, there's there's similar thematic things going on. You could yeah. say so. It sounds like it at least. Yeah. I haven't seen your film. Maybe we should do a tour. You know, Gnostic I'm, I'm Front down. and Cats. I'm down, man. <laughs> Featuring, you know, stories. Yeah. Let's do it. Cat yeah. Gnostic we Front. Have a cat, a yes. cat mosh pit. I love it. I love it. The cats play guitars. So they can play some hardcore. <laughs> I'm not sure how Erica's character would fit in there, but let's hear about her. That would be interesting. Um, so the judge chronicles the journey of the first woman judge to be appointed to the Sharia law or Islamic law courts in the Middle East. And uh, Judge Khulud is very much kind of this larger-than-life character who um, the film chronicles her actual appointment. And in this kind of very courtroom, verite, drama-esque way, we see how she overcomes and navigates the difficulties of working within Sharia and advocating for women within that framework. It's funny, too, because now in, in hearing that, there's this third similarity, like between, or another similarity between the three films is that you all sort of have these outsider figures. <clears throat> they're, they're doing things in their own ways. So can you just talk a little bit more about that? Like, why did you feel your characters had some, like, enough of a story to make something about? Um, well, at first, I wasn't sure if there was enough story. Um, essentially, I received a photo text from a friend that said cat circus on it there's like a flyer picture it's a cat circus and I was like all right I'm intrigued and I initially thought if Samantha was interested it would maybe be like a two-minute short um, but slowly I saw the amount of ambition she possessed and how much work it took to create this thing I kind of met up with her when it was in the infancy stages and so slowly as I started traveling with her a bit testing the waters um, all these conflicts are arising out of trying to create your own business and start over at a certain point in your life. And from there, um, you know, I, I knew that there was a larger story. So, I, I focused on, um, I think, my own personal, you know, um, wrestling with mortality, um, something that is on my mind 24-7. Um, you know, I turned... Uh, four years old this year, um, and uh, it's, it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 one of those things where you know um, I have a lot of questions. I think everybody has a lot of questions, and I kind of used you know them and their story as maybe it sounds a little cliche with a filmmaker, but I, I really wanted to understand it more and maybe get some answers and then apply those to my own issues and see if I could you know have some uh, some uh, calmness with uh, my own mortality issues um, but they're a very inspiring story um, on a lot of levels um, but yeah that's that's kind of how where I, how I approached it I always find it so fascinating to hear how other filmmakers come to their come to their films and come to their subjects and yeah. it's quite a journey a beautiful one um, so for me I was on shooting hiatus with my last film in football we trust and had received this opportunity to teach film uh, in Israel-Palestine and had done my postgraduate work in Islamic feminism and uh, had essentially an opportunity to, to study for free while on this hiatus. 
And a colleague of mine invited me to this Islamic reform meeting that was taking place in uh, Ramallah in the West Bank. And I walked into this conference room, which was, um, you know, full of men in tarbushes, which are the, the judges or sheikh's hats. And I remember being so enchanted by looking at all the pictures of Arafat throughout the years and feeling so privileged to be in this room. And then all of a sudden, Judge Khulud walked in and her presence very much captivated me and kind of radiated throughout the room and everyone stood up to greet her. And then as this meeting went on, they were discussing issues of domestic violence and raising the marriage age and polygamy and Khulud very much kind of I just my eyes went to her every single time she talked and I realized how um, women are, are so disproportionately affected by by the legal system there. And I had a chance to meet her after uh, this discussion and um, told her I was a filmmaker and she invited me into her court and just observing a couple of days in court. I was like, we, we got to make a film here. And wow. she loved the idea. Wow. That's amazing access too. that's kind of incredible. Well, I gotta ask you, like, after seeing the trailer, I've I watched it probably five times, and like, <laughs> how how the hell was that? Can you is profanity? You cut it out or what? Oh yeah, it's a podcast. Okay, game. just yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, but I don't I don't know, you know, <laughs> just making sure. You know. Like, h- how was it making that film for you, being a woman? Like, I can't even imagine, and being an American woman going over there and doing that. So I speak Arabic conversationally, not fluently. Um, and I actually feel like when I had to approach the chief justice or the head sheikh of the West Bank to ask for access after Khulud really was um, excited to start this this filmmaking process, I think that the fact that I had a really small camera and the fact that I am a woman, it was I was wasn't taken seriously, and in that way, it it worked. Um, to be able to gain access in the back of the courts, I think they thought like, ah. Oh, Go ahead. See see what you can do in the back of that court. Little lady. Yeah, yeah. little did, lady. Did you change the way, you, like, your clothes, the way you anything? Like, did you, you know? No, I mean, when you when you go into a Sharia court, of course, you want to be respectful. And so you, um, you're not wearing, like, you know, revealing or tight clothing. It's, um, you know, just uh, long pants, longer shirts, and... Um, but I think Palestine is very, we, we have this idea of the Middle East and we have this idea of women in the Middle East. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to to make this film is to really challenge what the media um, demonstrates or shows us as American and Western audiences. And I think that, um, you know, there's a, a plethora of different opinions and a, and a variety of different amazing strong women um, that come through, come through in the film. Yeah, and you, you sort of started to touch on this, but once you guys decided, wow, you know, I can focus on this character, there is a story there, then you have to get the access. And Erica, you touched on this a little bit. Sounds like you had a formal process. Ian, you probably had a relationship with these guys already. Yeah. So so for, for each of you, what was that step like? Taking the step from, I got to make this movie, to I got to get these guys to buy in, these men and women to buy in to me being a part of their life. I think that's one of the, the hardest things. Um, I lucked out in, in some ways is because I grew up, you know, listening to this band. Um, they, I, I've known these guys for 20 years. Um, you know, my band toured with them. I, I've, I've done a ton of music videos for them. So 
I always kind of knew, you know, they're like larger than life, no pun intended, um, you know, you know, status. Um, but I saw it from a different perspective because I was friends with them. So I knew a lot about, you know, their own uh, personal struggles, but not as much as when I started doing it because, you know, being friends with someone, of course, you, it's great on some levels being a filmmaker because they're going to, you know, they're going to act very comfortable with you. But at the same time, um, that's it's a burden at sometimes too, is because you have this weight on your shoulders of like, you know, also, you know, staying true to, to who they are, really are, and, you know, their legacy. And, you know, I, I think it, there's a lot of similarities in that. On Definitely. Levels, you know, and, and how, how do you, how to deal with that as a filmmaker, I think it's just trying to be as honest as possible. And it's a little hard when you're friends but the when I first decided to do my film with these guys, the the first thing that I said to them was I said, if we're going to do this, um, you have absolutely no say in the film. Nothing. You have nothing. You can't. And being a band, that's a very hard thing because I didn't want to tell the story of a band. That was not my focus at all. Um, what I found inspiring and really interesting was how the band has been a conduit for them to explore all aspects of their life. And they, they grow older and parallel themselves with that band and their own personal stories. And it's, it's, it's I think, you know, and, and listen, I know you said this is, you know, gonna be a lot about the process, but I think that's a huge part of the process of, of making a film is not only, you know, um, you know, really paying attention to that and respecting it as a filmmaker, but but also knowing what you're going to get in, into, and and a lot of the things that, I, you know, that that I didn't really. Let me back up. I tell young filmmakers this all the time. They ask me like, "Oh, how can I do this? How can I do that?" The first thing I always say is, "Are you ready to do this? Can are you, do you what? What's your support system like? <clears throat> Excuse me. Like, do you have anyone to help you? Do you have anyone to emotionally help you?" Because being on a project for, you know, a year, two years, three years, sometimes I met a woman last night with you that was 10 years. I can't imagine doing that. That is, filmmaking is, is about, in my opinion, is about stamina. And being able sure. to, to move through all those rough times because, whew, I mean. There's a lot of them. <laughs> well, yeah. kind of, you know, what I was getting at, stepping back, is you're talking about like the conversations you have to have with yourself to sort of embark upon a film but what kind of conversations did you guys have to have with your subjects to prepare them to get the access to really let them know hey I'm, I'm like really gonna be there with a camera all the time um so I mean just it's interesting what you were saying about the stakes of telling someone's story in a way or just the, the challenge of that because um, in a certain way when Samantha was starting out, it was sort of, you know, as I said, at the infancy stages, there seemed to be less stakes overall. In other words, people weren't coming out to her shows. Um, she wasn't necessarily as well known. So I think initially she was really excited by the idea. And as a couple of years pass, we shoot this over a five-year period, I begin feeling the pressure of telling this woman's story as there's more media attention, you know, on her. As she knows that I'm recording her and editing her story, 
while simultaneously she's trying to project a specific image, probably as any performer does. Did, you, right? did, did the line get crossed at all where you started to see her character and change to the one you knew? I mean, I wouldn't say there's something about her. I, I don't really know what authentic means anymore when we live in Instagram and outside <laughs> of Instagram. So I, I don't I don't know if authentic is the word, but I do want to say I didn't necessarily see a change in who she is. She's someone who has always been very um, specifically um, in tune with herself. And I think her show sort of represents that in a lot of ways. Um, but I did feel a very large weight of telling this story properly in a way that was truthful, but also that she would not be upset about. So in the final couple of years, that was really something that um, I like. There were some nights I wouldn't be able to sleep. I was like, oh, God, I, I really hope <laughs> it's going to end well. You know, did so, she see the film before you were done? Or? She did. She saw it a couple of weeks before it's going to play. And um, I was really nervous. And I think what you're saying about telling a truthful story really comes into play. I was I was worried that some of the material we use she would be worried about. And she really didn't have any critiques. Um, she had small, minimal things that <laughs> she, she suggested maybe we change. Probably stuff you didn't even think about. Exactly. Yeah. Things I wasn't even concerned about. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah, we can, we can discuss that. Um, so... I think, right, what you're saying about telling the truthful story, I think when you go for that and try to represent someone in that way, it really comes through. So then, Erica, what about you in terms of getting the access? Because you said you had to ask for, like, formal permission from the courts, which sounds like a pretty different process than, than the guys here went through. The the amount of sleepless nights where you're wondering, you know, am I telling this this story as justly as I possibly can? Have I given this like my absolute all? Is this something that is going to actually have impact? Those are the questions that I like stay up at night ruminating over. Um, and when Hulud and I first met, I don't think that she she really had an idea of how long it was going to take. And, you know, we started this project in 2012. And, you know, here here we are. It's 2017. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> um, and there were a lot of questions like, OK, well, well, why why can't you come back to Palestine and film right now? I'm like, we don't have funding. A lot of times I was going over and just shooting by myself and, you know, funding it, uh, self-funding it. Um, and there's there's so many details about the pro- filmmaking process that are subjects or what I like to actually um, refer to as participants don't understand, and that that relationship of trying to explain, okay, it, like we actually have to have funding to be able to hire an editor, and that's a lot of money, and um, you know this process takes years, uh, is is an interesting one. Um, with Hulud, actually, I found her to be one of the the most um, easy to work with participants. She was incredibly accommodating and was like, okay, what do you want to get in this shoot? And how can I make myself available? And if I need to arrange for childcare so that we have some time, just us, to be able to do interviews where it's not super noisy in the house, let me know. Wow. And so, yeah. I mean, she was incredibly, incredibly um, accommodating and, and really, really awesome in that way. Um, I think one of the the biggest challenges about access is in the process of making the film. The chief justice or the head sheikh um, was replaced three times. 
Um, and so every time I'd have to go back and wait to have a meeting with him and discuss the project all over again. Oh, my goodness. And then um, go through the process of requesting access and who I am and on and on. So that was probably one of the most challenging things. I'm interested. You kind of hinted at this, that she was so accommodating which kind of surprises me in a way. She seemed like a generous person, but also she's tough, just like all the characters here have a, or all the participants here have a certain toughness. So I was wondering, you know, when you are focused on individuals like this and they are these big personalities, were there ever times where there was some kind of conflict or something that you had to negotiate where maybe they didn't want you to shoot or they wanted more involvement than you wanted to give them or, or anything like that? How did you navigate those situations? There were definitely times when Khulud rolled her eyes at me or, um, you know, said, do we really need to do that? I, I talked about this before. I just told that you just about this. Just, do we really have to do that? Like, that literally just, it's like, ding! It was, it was, I'm conditioned to hear that. Like, really? Do we have to do it again? Really? Like, that's... <laughs> yeah, and not really understanding. I told you that Khulud has this incredible memory, so she actually talks about the dates. Like, we, we talked about that on October 17th of 2014. Wow. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, well, we're going to talk about it again. Wow. Um, and I think that she eventually like resigned to the process. But there, as as accommodating as she was, I think that there were a lot of like, really, is that a hundred percent necessary here? <laughs> what were your experiences like? I think you know we basically moved in with the guys um, on a couple different instances. Um, they're very different. Um, you know, Roger lives in Arizona. Um, he has two small children, a wife, beautiful suburban home. Um, and he's come from New York. He's come from a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, hard times. Um, and Vinny lives in the same apartment building that he was born in. He's lived in it for 60 years, and uh, he lives in uh, Little Italy. So that in itself is remarkable because there's not a lot of those New Yorkers, I think, left. And, I mean, I'm not from New York, but correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that, that, they're, they're leaving a, quickly. Yeah, they, yeah, they're becoming extinct. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they were very open to let, you know, myself and my film crew in. Um, but I, th I think there was definitely, you know, there's times when you can sense that you've been there a little bit too long, but that's when things kind of start getting good. And, you know, the openness and honesty of them just living their lives is, is you know, what we kind of went after. And it takes time, you know, to do that. And it's, it's also... Um, it's exhausting just to be in that mode constantly of someone else's space, like a guest, and writing that line of being the filmmaker, being a guest in their home. Because we literally, like, I think our, one of our first times filming, we went out to Roger and we stayed. He has like a little like apartment pool house kind of like thing off the side of his house. And it's his record room, actually. It's like his man cave um, where he has all his records and whatnot. So we stayed in there. Um, and, uh, it's, it was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was really, really cool to be on that level because I've been friends with these guys for years, toured the world with them many times, done a lot of things, but it's just different. It's, it's very different. Um, but were there times when they pushed back and you were like, no, I, re I really got to do this, man. Or did you step away when they asked you? In what you? way? What do you mean? Like, <clears throat> well, like, kind of like I was saying, like, you know, these, these were people with big personalities mm -hmm. and you're sort of there with them and were there ever times that you had to kind of negotiate where maybe they they didn't want you to do something or they asked you to leave no. or 
No, never, never. That was uh, they're they're very open. They're very um, they they they've never done anything like this, and they've been a band for you know thirty five plus years. They're actually uh, left for tour two days ago, um, and they're doing a, yet another tour in Europe. They're in England right now, um, and you know they they just don't stop. They do not stop, and um, you know being in in their their spaces and their homes. We were friends before, but we came, became different types of friends, you know, during the process, especially with Roger. Um, Vinny is Vinny. I don't know if you know, you've seen any of the, the trailer or whatnot, but yes. he's definitely a character <laughs> himself. But, um, you know, I, I treated them very differently um, when I was working with them. Um, Vinny and I uh, spent a lot of time in his apartment just hanging out and talking. And, and I'd be like, hey, why don't I just grab no 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 camera let's just grab a mic and let's just start recording so we record these just late night conversations of him and I up until five six o'clock in the morning in his kitchen and his apartment has such history in the New York City hardcore scene because it's been a basically a a, a crash pad for every rock star band around um, you know today that sitting in the room knowing the history of just that apartment alone um, was very different than with Roger and but it was still is equally as cool but in just a different way mm-hmm. um but yeah they didn't, they didn't push back really at all I, i'm trying to think as, as you were asking i'm trying to think i can't really think of a time they did sounds like all of your subjects were pretty generous what about yeah. you yeah i mean samantha is a very honest person um or at least that's the impression I get um, from what she tells and reveals on camera. So there wasn't that much pushback. I mean, I think the really only the real conflict, which is kind of minimal, is that she's working around the clock like her whole life. As you probably know, it's like when you're touring, you're in constant motion, you're moving things, you're getting ready, you're getting in a mindset to perform, and then you're going to the next town. So at times when I was like, oh, could you do this over again or could you do this? She would just, you know, become really annoyed. She's like, I'm trying to do my job here. I'm trying to work. And you are stopping me from doing that. Yes. And those are the moments where you kind of feel like a bad person and you're like, okay, where do you, where do I draw the line? You know, do I get this shot or do I let her do her job? Um, so th- that was, that was really the only real conflict, you know, as far as revealing information that was really, you know, I figured that was something we would talk about when she watched it. And I think she assumed the same thing. That's the impression I got. So. Yeah. There's also for me, a certain level of trust that, is required before you even go in to start filming. And, I mean, I was filming so much of the time, but Hulud and I had kind of an understanding of, you know, she could always sometimes say, like, uh, you know, I don't want, I can't have that on film, or an understanding that that me as the filmmaker who had spent a lot of time with her would understand the kind of the boundaries of that. So even though we were rolling, there are a lot of things that were not okay to be put on camera, ultimately in the film. I, I, now that I think about it, um, probably one of the bigger challenges was just getting a relationship with his kids. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, it was all exciting and stuff with cameras in and things like that. But, you know, I have kids and I think I had a little bit of a leg up because I, they're the same age as basically really close. So um, they're wonderful kids, but, you know, they, they became acclimated to us shooting pretty quickly. Um, and, you know, Roger's wife was, was very accommodating as well. But it's what I was trying to say earlier was these guys have never done anything like this. Um, they've done tons of interviews and TV and you name it, but they've never opened up 
they've always talked about the band or what the band was about or their you know what they what they they've never and that's what interested me was I got that great but how do you get to that point like how do you get to that point how do you what is it that drives you to feel that way mm-hmm. and then it brought in the whole questions of my own mortality and their mortality and whatnot and things like that so yeah well, that's actually a great transition, too, and you've all sort of touched on this, but, you know, we talked about the responsibility you have when you're telling someone else's story. You spend hours and years with these people, and then in the end, there's, you know, what, 75 minutes or a 90-minute film, so how did you each sort of make sure that you were showing these characters as sort of fully fleshed-out people as much as you could in that short time? And by that, I mean that if you're focused on a person the tendency could either be to make them a total hero and not include any flaws or to show like so many flaws that they, you know, the audience doesn't see like a different side. So how do you, how did you make sure as you were going along in post that you were showing a a fully fledged person? That actually is something that I thought about early on how I would do it. I love recording audio interviews interviews first um i find it's if you watch any of my shorts my earlier shorts they're all audio interviews with just b-roll over the top you know one of the things that i like to do at the very beginning of starting a film when i'm talking to participants um is why they want to do this film i personally you know i look at my life i'm like would i ever allow a documentary filmmaker to come in and (laughs) do that for me Uh, So I think that we have a responsibility to honor the reasons that they wanted to do that. And for Khulud, it was to inspire other women and girls around the world to pursue leaderships, uh, leadership roles in their communities, despite whatever cultural traditions or norms um, might be uh, in existence there. And so I thought, okay, I want this film to inspire Um, For me, I wanted to really address stereotypes um, and to address the increasing um, global Islamophobia through this film. And so, you know, I I wanted Khulud to be um, a complete person that people could identify with, um, that uh, young women and girls could see themselves in. But I also wanted to make sure that there was a larger social message that was um, being addressed. And I think that that's always that that for me in this film was kind of like, OK, how, how is this being represented? How is this going to be um, construed? How is this going to relate to the overall message um, while still like painting a portrait of, of a of an everyday person who um, people can identify with? Mm. What I was what I was saying before I lost my train of thought because I'm absolutely exhausted. I'm going on about an hour and a half of sleep. Sorry. Um, was I start all of my stuff with audio interviews? I find that you can use it as research, you know, or if you record it properly, you can use it in the film and it can match up very well. Um, so I start them that way, and then I, I decided it's it's such an it's such a, a different feeling when you record someone audio-wise. when Like us, we're just having a conversation. If there was cameras here, this would be completely different for all of us. But when you don't have the, you know, the, the lights and the camera and the, and the uncomfortableness, um, people kind of, I think maybe some people forget they're being recorded or just become more comfortable with it. Um, and I, I knew that I could, I could have that and I would get the real emotional you know, connection that I needed. And then I would just grab any other scene that would work 
and then weave it all together. And it, it's, it, it works really well that way um, because it allows you to have that, I call them speaking portraits, where you know it's just an audio recording and then beautiful B-roll at the top. And it allows you to really hone in on what the emotion is of that part of the film or the piece. Um, and then you can break away and give it a break. Oh, it's not so heavy now. Right. Oh, let's have a moment. Let's just get something cinevarte, like everybody just having a good time and um, or just whatever it may be. And then at the same time, weaving together, you know, these these different, you know, paralleled stories and, and threads. And uh, it's my film was, you know, taken made in a lot in the, in the editing process because of the way that I wove everything together. Um, it's a, it's a, I like the control of that, to be honest with you. You can really kind of make statements. Well, it's interesting talking about these portraits because I think another thing your films have in common is that they're in some ways subverting stereotypes. Like we might have a certain feeling when we see these hardcore guys with tattoos and whatever, and then you're getting this emotional depth out of them. And then Erica talked about, you know, there's a global sort of perception of, you know, various elements of Islam and her character subverts those. And then with Jacob, I mean, you're, you're, I think you even talked about this in a no film school interview we did before that you, you know, people might look at this, this woman, Samantha as a crazy cat lady and feeling, you know, that cliche. So how did you round her out in the, in the film? Right. Yeah. I really love listening to different filmmakers processes, by the way. It's really interesting because hmm. how everyone arrives at that final story. Yeah, um, that's what we're all about. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Um, but for me, um, Samantha's a really smart, intelligent, hard worker. And so I knew immediately that people would root for her because of that. Um, ultimately, this film had very little to minimum funding the first like four years of its existence, which was in some ways horrible but because it was coming out of my pocket. But in other ways, it was kind of great because there was a freedom to not stress out about time and deadlines. That's the best, isn't it? Yeah. So I was not worried about someone, a producer breathing over my shoulder or anything like that. So what I really enjoyed was shooting a lot of observational footage. Um, and I feel like through that, her essence and her, you know, her character and her true self is is portrayed there. And I think when you have that, the humanity of a human being interacting in day-to-day -day life just shines through mm. um, without a doubt. So the, the final product, there is a lot of interview and um, voiceover to weave it all together. But I feel like those moments of observational at, footage at the beginning and throughout the process really um, create this very fleshed out portrait of this person rather than, you know, the stereotypes of a specific B-roll shot that could convey her one way or another. So just letting the camera run and having that luxury of time to do that, I think, really was advantageous in this case. Um, and there's arguments for both methods, of course, and both, you know, can reap really fantastic results. But that that's sort of in my mind. I knew I was working with someone who could potentially be pegged as the stereotype. So it was really important to me to let the cameras roll and show the human interacting in day-to-day -day life. You know, speaking on that, it's like you had mentioned something earlier about, you know, filming these larger-than-life guys and on the road and touring and whatnot. The fact of the matter is, being on the road, a lot of people don't realize that being on the road, 23 hours out of the day, you're figuring out what to do. It's like... It's because you have that one hour on stage. If you're, you know, a headlining act, you know, hour, hour and a half, forty-five. If you're a hardcore band, it's like forty-five minutes. Right. <laughs> but like, you did your entire yeah, yeah, discography. Yeah, <laughs> but 
um, you know, that's, yeah, I think figuring out um, there's not a lot to capture. You can sit there and capture all day, and a lot of these guys separate themselves, and they have their moments, and then they come together on stage. And it's a little bit different, too, because these guys have been together and on the road together for 35 years, so plus years. So you can imagine that they're over it. They're over hanging out, partying, doing all this stuff. They just do this because they love it, but they need that time where they can break away. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how much footage I, we have of Roger just on his phone or his computer during the day. Like, <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't even tell. And, like, you know, friends of mine have, have seen, you know, some of the footage and, just, and I'm like, you know, it must have been crazy. I'm like, no, it's not crazy. <laughs> Bands don't party 24-7. Like, these guys don't even really go crazy by any means. Um, so, yeah, it's so it's like, you know, you, you out of all the, the months that we were filming, you know, I feel like we grabbed the the best ones, obviously, and the best scenes, but they all have a meaning for the film, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's 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 quite a process. Yeah. <laughs> Say the least. Yeah. yeah. Did you cut your film? So I cut it for the first three years that I was filming, and at a certain point, it's like I do not have perspective anymore, and and that was the point where an, an yeah. editor came in and we worked well, closely together. Cool that you actually like acknowledge that because yeah, it was just getting to a point where it's like what. What is this? You know? How about you, Erica? Did you cut your phone? No, I am not an editor. No. I did our first like sample reel, which was like two minutes maybe, which I used to get a little bit of development funding. But beyond that, that's something I don't touch. Yeah, that's, that's nice. I, <laughs> I, 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 I cut my film and I, because I edit as, like I direct and I edit and I own a small post studio in Boston. So I do a lot of commercial work. But this was different because this was basically like, I don't know if this is the right analogy, but like living above the store, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, it's like constant. It's like, I'm shooting then I'm editing. And I found at the end, once I reached the end of the film and I said, okay, I got it. I'm like, I got to cut a trailer. And I was like, no way, I'm not doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm not cutting a trailer. And I had to find someone because I wanted a different perspective. I wanted someone else to come in at that point because I had learned what I wanted to learn and I had said what I wanted to say. Now I needed someone else to come in and say, how do you perceive this? And um, that's, that's, that's a, I, that was a big step for me as being a control freak. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you guys could probably all, you know, uh, relate with that. But, um, also because personal projects, you know, they're very, very yeah. personal to all of us. And trailer, when I mean, we talked about this before, trailer editing is like its own. Oh, 100 percent. The guys are like anybody that's a trailer editor. I mean, I have so much respect for. And I cut a ton of stuff. But that is something that I just really just I just don't do. It's 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 really remarkable how trailer editors think um, and how they process footage and story. It's like and editing pace. a whole short film yes. in itself. Exactly. Yeah, it's and crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy. Um, we had a, 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 again, a Mark Valentine here in New York, actually, that cut it. Um, and uh, it was a re really, really great process. He, I was telling you last night that he, he cut an Honest Liars trailer. And I love that trailer. Um, I love that film. And um, I was like, the director introduced me to him. And I was like, watch this. Tell me what you think. And he's like, Oh, this is something special. I want to. I want to be part of this, because it is very different. 
it's a very different rock doc. I hate the word rock doc because then you automatically think formula. But it's like a, I haven't figured out the right word to describe it. But yeah. So when when everybody sees it, we'll get back to you with our yeah, yeah, our yeah. descriptions. Yeah, yeah. Outside of filmmaking, um, you spend so much time with these folks, and you obviously feel like they have perspectives that are worth sharing with the world. So I'm curious about kind of what life lessons you learned from them. Like, what did you learn from your subjects as people? I learned a lot from Hulud. I mean, a a whole, like, at varying degrees um, and in different subject matters. I remember asking her the first time I met her, which shows um, a lot of my ignorance about Sharia at that time, even having studied Islamic feminism. And I said, you know, how, how do you... Do you ever feel um, like you being a woman, it's a, a conflict with, with the Sharia and you working within the Sharia? Um, how, does, how does that make you feel? And she said, the problem is not with the Sharia. It's with the misinterpretation um, of the Sharia. The, the problem is with who is interpreting it. And I, you know, really learned a lot from that. And that's kind of, you know, what we, what we show in the film. Um, and then I think on a on a personal level, her work is so stressful and so strenuous, and I never f- fully realized how she didn't take her work home because I'm the kind of person that's working twenty four seven. I throw myself into the into the subject matter. I throw myself into the, these stories. Um, I think all of us here here do. Um, but for her, she has this like unbelievable compartmentalization ability where she's like, this is this is this subject matter. This is work. This is something I need to deal with now. This is my family. This is wow. like child care time. This is it. and, you know, you have to when you're juggling so many things. So I think I learned a life lesson of compartmentalizing. How big was your film crew? You said it was just you a lot of time. Did you it's like small? So for the first six months, it was just me. Um, and then the following shoots, one of the shoots, it was just me and then some local crew. And then um, we, the last shoot, we expanded our team. And um, I had an amazing cinematographer and co-producer, um, Amber Ferris, who came with me and um, had an incredible local Palestinian crew that we really fleshed out um, and had like a, an, a drone operator and... Um, you know, all, all kinds of field producers working and really help help finish the film. Wow. We should throw in a plug for Amber's really badass movie, too. Didn't she make Speed Sisters? Yes, she so did. So that's another uh, film that takes place in Palestine about a women's uh, speed racing team, like a car racing team. Yeah. It's really cool. How long were you over there? I lived there for six months the first time and then went on two follow-up shoots for about a month. Wow. So life lessons from Samantha or from the agnostic front guys? Oh boy, um, <laughs> I got to think on that one for a second. Um, I'm still I'm still trying to figure it out myself. To be honest with you, um, um, I think it's if anything, it, it's it's taught me to really believe and love what you do, um, and be prepared for the costs of it. Um, that's a that's a big thing. Um, I, I think, you know, just don't be a dick. <laughs> you know, I think that's a big thing too. And um, you know, believe what you you say and what you do. 
um, and and stay true to it for as long as you can. Um, I think there's a there's a there's a very you know big line in the film um, when Roger said it. Um, I, I you know I couldn't believe he said it, and I was like I literally remember looking at my DP Anthony Jarvis and my co-producer Tony Fernandez, and I said that's the end of the film. That's it. I got it. and he was like what? And I was like that's it. I, that's it. That that is the line, because what he says is um, um, I've always uh, um, wanted to you know die uh, doing what I love to do. Um, and if that's right here and now, that's what it is. And it's like, that's just like, it's, it's like, wow, like that's, that's commitment to doing something that you love and being, uh, you know, really just focused on it your whole life. It's, uh, yeah. How about you? Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels between yeah. our films in that way. I'm um, pumped to see it tonight. Yeah, yeah. I hope you stop by and everyone else. Okay. Hey, come on by. Um, <laughs> As far as the life lessons, yeah, I mean, you know, again, I'm observing someone continuing down this really hard road and watching the stakes that come with it. And so um, I think it, it more than anything, I learn things too, but I'm also shot. I think, but, but right now I can really think about um, beliefs that are really reaffirm that um, at any age you can do something and try it um, and follow through on it. You know, I think there's a very specific stigma of, you know, regarding starting a new occupation, especially if it doesn't fit in the current, um, like, zeitgeist of what's acceptable. And so that, to me, was a big one. I'm like, there's something really extraordinary about doing that at a certain age and falling through on that. Um, I think there's a, a bravery to that. So um, that, was, that was really reaffirming, too. Absolutely. It's interesting because I think any of these lessons can apply to filmmaking as oh, well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the whole time I was like, this is me also. I'm recording myself. Well, <laughs> you know, it, it, exactly. Yeah. Like my co-producer, Tony Fernandez, uh, at one point I was having a really rough time just emotionally getting through how much work I was putting into this and at the same time trying to make a living, you know, and it's it's not easy. Um, and I remember just sitting in the edit bay and I was just rolling over my head at this one scene. He's like, why are you having such a hard time with this? And I was like, oh, I don't know. He says, because this is you. Mm. And I, I, I was just like, Whew. it hit me like, I was like, oh. And that's when I realized, I was like, wow, I'm kind of making, am I making a film about myself, about, you know, through someone else? Like, it was, it was, it was like this moment I was like, oh man like this is heavy shit like <laughs> wow I'm like did I just like figure something out about myself and and it, it because so many things that I had questioned about my own self were being talked about in interviews and I would find myself going yeah really well wh wh what do you do about this you know and, and like it, it was it was really interesting for me and it, I wouldn't use the word exciting because it was at times kind of brutal because then I would have to deal with those things in my own head later on where I'd go for a run or I'd go take you know, a break and I would just start thinking about it more and more. And then of course I would say, how am I gonna put this together? Like, how am I gonna do this? And um, the good thing was that you know, I had a great team. Like I, had a, like I said early on, I had a great like, uh, group of people, support system, you know, I couldn't have, I, I, I actually told Tony this the other day, but I couldn't have done this film without him. He's was just a great, right next to me the whole time. 
and just bouncing ideas off each other and and then he would say you know I don't know what your problem is with this scene like it's great why are you why are you obsessing about it he's like because you're because it's you right it's like you you're still wrestling you're not wrestling with the scene you're wrestling with yourself in this question I'm like yeah you're right I am yeah it is good okay this is a good part yeah all right <laughs> but yeah it's uh, it's when you really put yourself into it wow that's a pretty profound uh, note to end on so thank you each so much, and I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing the progress of your films and the kind of distribution process, and best of luck. Thank you for having Thank you. Us. Thank you. It's great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can hear lots of other fascinating conversations on the art of filmmaking by finding the No Film School podcast in iTunes. Make sure to subscribe there or on your favorite podcast app so you can catch our Indie Film Weekly News Show which comes out every Thursday morning and fills you in on everything you might have missed when you were busy making films. Also, be sure to visit nofilmschool.com for useful new articles every single day. Meanwhile, stay in touch. You can reach me on Twitter at LizFilm, and we are on Twitter at NoFilmSchool. See you on Thursday. <laughs>